Has someone ever told you, you have trust issues? If so, it's trust issues are often connected to events in the past where you were let down by people who you trusted. Perhaps it was a friend or a parent or a spouse or a sibling. And if we're not careful, those times can interfere with trusting others in our lives. You might say Zechariah had trust issues. He didn't believe that God would be able to do what he said he would do. When the angel announced to Elizabeth, you're going to have a child. You see, they were old. They were past the time of having a child. If you read verses 5 through 25, you might know or understand how difficult it might have been for him to believe that. Maybe Zechariah's trust issue with God was due to his wife's lifelong condition of barrenness. You see, undoubtedly, in fact, the Bible says that when the angel came, that his prayer had been answered. Now, he's old, and so you imagine since they were married in their teenage years, and probably at least in their 50s, if not beyond that, 60s, can you imagine for 30, 40 years that they've been praying for that, for a child to come, a son? You see... If you don't understand the magnitude of that, you don't understand what the New Testament was all about. Because for a woman, it was everything to be able to have a child. But not just to have a child, but to have a son. Because the son would carry on the family's name. He would run the family business. And not to have it meant that you had been really, to some level, cursed by God. Because everyone knew that God closes the womb and opens the womb. And if you did not have that blessing from God, there was something wrong. And for decades, years passed, decades passed. But for Elizabeth and Zechariah, no child. And now they're probably thinking no chance of a child. And if it was you and me, I think that over time, questions would begin to form in your mind and in your heart, wouldn't they? Why us? You know, Zechariah is a priest. He's a righteous man. So the priest and and his wife, why us? Why this? Maybe we have done something wrong. Why wasn't God doing anything? Why wasn't God blessing us? And I'm sure that when they passed things, people had conversations, they would walk by, they might sense, whether it was real or not, people were whispering, oh, there goes the family, the priest. What kind of priest is he? He can't have a child. Do you have trust issues? Perhaps... It's connected to something in your past as well, in your response to events that have taken place. Perhaps God hasn't answered your prayer the way that you think he should have or the way certainly that you wanted him to. Maybe you have endured a kind of, can I say, barrenness of your own. Maybe it's not a barrenness of the womb, but maybe it's an empty relationship. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, when am I going to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Time is ticking, you might say. No marriage, perhaps it's close friendships that you're looking for, and you're empty from that. Maybe it's the job, the dream job that you've always wanted, and and you look for that raise or that promotion, but all you get is nothing. Do you find it hard when you open the Bible, when you're facing circumstances like that, to actually believe that God will do what he said he would? Does your past, perhaps like Zechariah's, Does it interfere with your present 
and your belief in what God has said in his word? Do you see your circumstances through God or do you see God through your circumstances? You see, Luke really wants us to get this message because he brackets the entire gospel with two very similar stories. The circumstances are different, but the story is the same. It's about a couple in chapter 1 and a couple in chapter 24. Both of them face impossibilities. Having a child in your old age in chapter 1, believing that it's possible that Jesus who died a shameful crucifixion was actually alive. To believe those things, they would have to have faith. They would have to believe. Both of them experienced two different scenes in their lives. The first is they are, have a failure of faith. They really don't believe. In fact, on chapter 24, Jesus himself, when they don't know he's walking beside them, chides them when they says, Oh, you slow of heart to believe all the prophets have said. But in both cases, both couples have a failure of faith at first to believe what God says, and then God turns it around in their lives, and they have a fullness of faith where they actually trust exactly what God says, and they see that it comes to pass. See, I think what Luke wants to do by bracketing his book that way, he wants us today and decide this, which scene are you in? See, you're facing circumstances, your own emptiness, your own quote-unquote impossibility, and you're facing those things. And see, which one describes you? Is it a failure of faith or a fullness of faith? Are you in the first scene where you really doubt or perhaps disbelieve God's word? Or is it more that you're on the other side? Which one controls you? What you see or what God says? Because it'll make a difference in your life. Let me start off this morning, can I? And take this with you. I I hope you will. The definition I want to give you for trust. Trust is accepting whatever God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Let me say it again. Trust is accepting whatever God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. So, Keeping with our series, I could say, you're ready for Christmas when you can trust God, when you can trust God for whatever, and whatever means exactly that, whatever he sends into your life, whether you understand it completely or not. You read the text, the first scene of Zechariah, he didn't believe, he's been muted, literally. I'll tell you more about it later. He cannot hear and he cannot talk. That's the failure of faith, scene one. The fullness of faith is our text. And when you put the two together, it asks the question, it begs us to ask, how do you go from failure of faith to fullness of faith? How do those things work together? How can someone learn to trust God more when he sends such difficult things into their lives? Well, I think Zechariah is going to teach us a lesson about trusting God. Two lessons, in fact, and they are these. The first one is to trust God and learn to do so. You have to trust or see God's hand in your past. You do. And secondly, you have to be able to see God's hand in your present. So we're going to unpack each one of those two in the time we have left today. You need to see God's hand in your past circumstances. I don't know about you, but when you face difficulties in your life and you've been crying out to God, one of the most difficult lessons to learn is to be okay with God's timing. 
Chapter 1, verse 57 starts off with this phrase. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. If you read the infancy narratives and the birth narratives of Luke 1 and 2, you'll find that the issue of time is a big deal. Even so much so in Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The Bible says in chapter 1 of Luke 23, it says that because he didn't believe, Zechariah didn't believe the angel's words from God, that he would not be able to speak until the very day. In other words, God had the plan all mapped out. When Elizabeth would get pregnant, when she would be able to give birth, and what Zechariah would do in the meantime, and when his lips would be loosed again so that he can talk. In fact, the little word time is our English word chronos. We get chronology from it. It's putting everything in sequence. And sometimes when you look at your life as a Christian, doesn't it seem like, oh, this is God's plan? And it's easy to say that, but when you look at your circumstances and you begin to say, wow, what kind of timing is this? See, you have to be able to say, is it my time or God's time that I'm living at? Whose calendar dictates how I view the things that God sends into my life? I was living in Ohio. I was youth pastor at the church that I grew up as a little boy. And I didn't, I got a call from New Jersey. And they wanted me to come to be the associate pastor. And I, had, I was born in New Jersey my first year or two, but I've never spent much time here. And I didn't think very highly of it. And so I had maybe a five-minute conversation, and I said, no, thank you, but thank you for considering me. That was it. Well, then a few months later, I got a second call from New Jersey, and they asked me the same thing again. And thinking in my mind, I'm like, these people don't get it. (laughs) I don't want to go to New Jersey, right? All right, a couple months later, I got a third call. And by then, I'm going like, okay, God, (laughs) I get it. I'll come. And so... I didn't know at the time, but that was June of 1996, which for me, we've been here 27 years. And at the time, we didn't realize it, but we just actually just did realize it, that when we accepted that call, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Mackenzie. Mackenzie was born at the hospital downtown Trenton that I don't think they even have as a hospital, at least not in the way it was before. She was born in January of 1997. Let me tell you about the timing. Three years later, in the year 2000, McKenzie had developed ear problems. We thought it was just an ear infection or something, but it ended up being a certain kind of cancer called clostiotoma, actually tumors, and they eat through the ear uh, function of your ear, the pieces inside that allow you to hear, and eventually they would eat into the wall of your brain, and you would die from them if they didn't eradicate them. See, the timing of God is this, that we came here the third time when she was pregnant. She was born here, and the number one specialist in the United States for her problem worked at Philadelphia at CHOP. And after nine or ten surgeries, she was able to have salvage her hearing. She lost a little bit of it. But I can tell you this, there's no accidents in life, only appointments. You see, God's timing, not the first time I was called or the second But the third time, God knew exactly when he wanted me here, and his timing was always right. Orvin, in the balcony, went to the doctor for a normal appointment and had to look at a few things, his normal 
and, and he didn't realize that he had a heart valve problem. A couple years earlier, he went to an appointment and had another major issue physically that he knew nothing about, but he was just going for a regular routine appointment. Both of them were found out at the exact time that God wanted it to, doing normal, ordinary things to reveal God's mercy and kindness. I was looking for a Bible college to go to at 18, and everyone in my church went to a really large Christian school at the time, and I didn't want to go to that one. And so someone recommended me a very small Bible college in Minnesota, of all places. God has this sense of humor, sending me to New Jersey and sending me to a really cold, frigid place called Minnesota. You know it's bad in Minnesota that when you park your car downtown, you have to plug it into the heater meter. It's, it's, that's how cold it is. And so I, just, I went there on a trip to view the college, very, very small, 700 students. And I went there, and I was put in the room with a guy who was a junior, and he was, I was to sleep in the bunk in his room, and he was going to take me around, and his name was Dan Miller. Never met him before. And so I went there, and I really liked the school, but I even more liked Dan Miller. And I said, this is the school for me, because if they're turning out people like him, I want to go. And so I went to that school, and the first year, I was a pastoral train, a student, pastoral ministry. You had to serve in a local church. And so, of course, I'm thinking, there's a few down there, a couple over there. I'm going to stay here, drive 10 minutes, I'll be fine. Dan Miller was, when I, when I was assigned a room, it was on his end of the third floor. He was my monitor. No accident. Timing was perfect. He asked me one day, as first semester began, have you found a church to serve in? I said, no. He goes, come serve with me. I said, okay. I just agreed because I liked them. He didn't tell me it was two hours each way. <laughs> so I went with him. I ended up going with him for two and a half years to do that every Sunday. And so I went there and Lo and behold, I went to his little teeny church in a little teeny town, and it had about 60 or 70 people in the whole church. That was all it was. And I met this girl there named Chris Schroeder. I didn't date her then because I was a freshman and she was just a 15-year-old girl. I mean, I didn't have time for that, right? But she came to college. She almost chose another school, but she came to Pillsbury. I was a senior. She was a freshman perfect timing. Her mom brought her to the first thing there. We had a big event, and her mom, because I knew her, because I'd gone to church with her mom for, for two and a half years, I, she said, I said, listen, don't worry about Chris, because she was all nervous first year. I said, I'll take care of her. See, 37 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> right? Timing. Oh, see, I, I never would have saw those things. I would have never seen how awesome New Jersey is, Right? I would have never understood why God would want me to go to this little school or go so far away to church every Sunday. Oh, you know why? His timing is best. Do you believe that? Do you that? Or do you believe that your timing is best? See, if you think you're a better judge of timing than God, see, you have trust issues. Oh, see, some people exhibit that trust issues when it comes to dating. See, they know what the Bible says. It's like Zechariah knew what God had said. See, they know. They know the Bible says you marry, save people when you're a Christian. But they're tired of waiting. 
So they take things into their own hand. They start dating unbelievers, and then they marry unbelievers, and then it never works, and they, start, they maybe get divorced, and they wonder, really, what happened? Why didn't God do something? Oh, see, having children, it's difficult, isn't it? You get married, you want to have children, and it's not happening. Again, my friend Dan Miller got married. He was, mar- he was married for five years. They could have no children. But they kept believing and trusting in God. And it doesn't always work this way. Don't get me wrong. But after five years, the doctor said you won't be able to have children. They had five children. Because God opens and closes the womb. Oh, getting the right job. See, some people will begin to take, oh, you know what? I know I shouldn't work at this place. And I know what they're asking me to do. And I know what is involved in a job like this and how it'll take me away from God and ministry and service. And I know I won't be able to see my children or my wife. See, we begin to think, oh, yeah, but I better take it because this is my only chance. We get a sickness or a disease and we just say, God, why would you bring this into my life right now? I remember the first time my dad... When my mom started forgetting things, she had just turned 70, and they weren't thinking about Alzheimer's or anything at the time. She began to repeat phrases and things. We knew something was wrong immediately. My dad began to say to me, I don't understand. Why would God do this? These are our retirement years. This is what we saved up for. We have plans, a future. We want to spend the last years of my life, and my wife eventually won't even know who I am. My dad spent the last nine years feeding my mom with a spoon, changing her, can I say, diaper, getting her dressed, not hearing my mom not be able to know who he was or even complete full sentences. Why? Do you believe God's best and his timing then? He did. He, he grew to understand and trust God that he knew exactly what it was about and the friendships that he would make of people who came to visit their loved ones with Alzheimer's and the opportunities he had to share Christ because of it. See, you might be saying this morning, I don't understand. Why is God, why is this a good time for this now? Well, the question is, see, whether that response is in keeping with your story or God's. Zechariah finally figured it out when he trusted God. You know why he could trust his timing? Because this is God's story, Zechariah found out, not mine. I'm not the author. I'm not the editor of my life. God is. And when you come to that realization as a Christian, you will begin to say, God, I trust you. I trust you. I don't understand your timing. I don't know why the cancer now. I don't know why. I don't know why I lost my job now. But God, I trust you. This is your story in my life. That's, that's the hardest thing about, see, learning to see God's hand in your past. The first one is you've got to trust in God's plan. But the other part of it, in verse 58, is you have to understand and trust God's purpose. The Bible says in verse 58, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Now, I don't know if Elizabeth would have seen not having children all this time as a great mercy or a great misery. It's interesting, in the original language, it says, the Lord had shown her. It's an unusual Greek word, mega luno. It means great light. It's the word that you use or translated in the New Testament as magnified. Paul said, 
For me to live is Christ, and according to my earnest expectation and my hope, nothing I shall be ashamed. But now, as always, Christ shall be magnified in my body. Mary says the very same word in her song, the magnificent. It means to magnify. She's magnifying God and his greatness. See, here's the reality of Elizabeth and Zacharias looking on the past events of not having a child, but now they can. See, God says, this is how you should view it. See, this is how you see my hand in your past. It's been a great mercy that I did this for you. I'll see, there are two ways to magnify things. You can magnify something with a microscope. And if you do, you are trying to make something very small appear bigger than it really is. Something microscopic. My daughter's ear tumors were so small that you could not see them unless you had a microscope. That's why it took 10 surgeries to get them all because they are so small. Or you can magnify something with a telescope. And a telescope does this. It tries to get something that is really, really big to seem to be as big as it really is. So when you look at a telescope at a star, see, it looks so small, like a little pin dot in the sky. But we know they're huge. They're huge. Telescopes try to give you the advantage. It's really big. And now if you look through that, you can see it to be at least somewhat closer to the size that it really is. Oh, see, which one is your life? Do people look through your life and see God as if somehow it's a microscope, that he's really small and insignificant in his power and his grace and mercy in your life? And and you know what? He's so small, we're trying to make him a little bit bigger. Or when they look through the lens of your life, do they see God through a telescope, that he seems small to them? But the more they're around you and the more they watch you and how you respond to your impossible circumstances, that see, he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in their life because he's big in your life. I'm convinced that God's plan and God's purpose work together. And here's why. The purpose is mercy magnification. That's what it is. But listen, but if you are seeing your life and your past and everything as me magnification, I don't understand why God did this. I don't understand why he didn't come in this time. I don't, and if you don't understand it and it ruins your faith and causes you to doubt, see, it's because your life is centered around you. It's called me magnification. But Elizabeth and Zacharias had to figure out this. See, God says, my story isn't ultimately about all of your wishes and dreams. It's about what's best for my glory and for the sake of the gospel. And if you don't have that mindset, you're going to say, God, why aren't you magnifying me? God, why aren't you making me bigger? God, why aren't you giving me the things I want? See, you're not doing this and you're not answering that. Mercy magnification eliminates your control and your views of entitlement. Me magnification encourages control and your views of entitlement. When you think God revolves around you, you think, God, give it to me because I deserve it, and you should give it to me now. My timing, see? My plan, my purpose. But see, when you understand the whole point of your life is mercy magnification, that God is not giving you what you truly deserve, you understand that God is working in your life for different purposes to make him look great, not you. John Mark Gutterson, 
mercy magnification. I thought about him. Why would God wait so long to save him from his sin and almost simultaneously save him from his cancer? Mercy. Not to make John Mark great, or he would have done it years ago. You know why he did it and waited till John Mark was in his 60s? Sorry. <laughs> Mercy magnification. Because he didn't have to do it at all, but he did. And the mercy of God magnifies how great and truly awesome God is. I'm thinking about Bob Gottwald, 80 years old, but he's dying. His lungs will cease to work sooner than later. Why? Why this? Why now? You know why God magnified his mercy? Because they had their 50th anniversary, and he lived long enough for that. His brother, who doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior, has come and spent time with him. And Bob has given him the gospel. It magnifies his mercy. See, God loves to work in our lives in such a way that people have to come to the conclusion. And they'll rejoice and say this, that has to be God. What a mercy it is that God would do that. Let me ask you, are you okay when he works in your life like that? Will you still trust him if he works in your life and it seems like he's put it off? That you have to endure so long that it hasn't gone your way time after time after time? See, that's trust. Accepting whatever God sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. So if you're going to learn to trust God, you have to see his hand in your past. But flip it over. You also have to see God's hand in your present. Scene one in both these stories is a failure of faith. But scene two is a change. And it always comes to be a fullness of faith. What is the difference? Well, part of it is they begin to see their past differently and what God has always been doing in their life. And they bring it into their present circumstances. What happened in Zechariah's life? See, before, before his wife was pregnant, before he saw God do anything, he doubted. He didn't think God could really do it. He was too old. He had reasons in his mind that it couldn't possibly come to pass. But it's hard to deny, isn't it? Nine months later, he's got a baby boy. And the Bible says in verse 59, look at the text, it's the eighth day. John not yet, but he's going to be. John the baptizer is eight days old. He's going to be circumcision. It was required by the law of Jewish people. The Torah said on the eighth day you would circumcise. And see, you know, as he goes that day, I can't help but think this, that he says, oh, you know what? God does keep his word. He can perform everything. And performing circumcision just reminded him of, of God for the centuries after centuries has required his people. He told them things. He promised them things. Until the very day, God can do it. Nine months of thinking about his mistake and failure of faith. So he had a lot of time to think about how he didn't trust God when the Gabriel came and told him the message. And I believe, as I read the text, that he and Elizabeth had intentionally prepared that this time, on this day, it would be different. See, I think they remembered what the angel said to them. The very first thing 
which they didn't even get right at all. The, the very first thing it says, and you will have a son and you will call his name John. He's going right back to the original thing. This is all about what Gabriel said that God told the angel to say. Now here's the hard part. Read the text for yourself. From verse 60 on, you're going to find this, that they're going to trust God. They've pre intentionally prepared to name him John and obey this time what God says. But can I tell you this? It isn't going to be easy because none of their friends and none of their relatives like it. (laughs) None of them. We have to broaden the definition a little bit, don't we? See, trust is accepting whatever God sends into your life, even if you and others don't understand it. See, they're going to name the child John, and everybody's going to be, no, you're not. You're doing what everybody else does. And you have to understand a little bit of a cultural idea. Naming. Naming in Judaism is very crucial in the Old Testament. What's the significance, Pastor Walker, of naming someone? Why does it matter so much? Why would they all get set up by it? Well, because when you name someone in the Old Testament, naming means you have authority over them. For example... God names Adam. Why? Because God made him. God is the ruler. He's the controller. He creates and he is the authority in Adam's life. Adam names the animals. One by one, God brought all the animals to Adam and he gives them names. Why? Because man was to rule over nature, over the animals. He even names Eve. Why? Because in their relationship, according to God's design, he had authority over his wife. He was the head of his home. Jesus cast out the legion of demons of the man from Gadara. You remember? And he says, what is your name? And the demon says, legion, for we are many. Why did he ask for his name? Because Jesus wants everybody to know, I control you. I don't care how powerful you are, how many there are. See, you tell me your name. You know why? Because I have authority over you. And that's why, on the other side, is that you can't name God. Remember Manoah? He sees The fire come down and consume the altar, and he's afraid. And he says, God, what is your aim? And he says, what do you mean asking my name? You can't ask my name. Jacob tried to ask God's name when he wrestled with him. And you can't ask God's name. You can't tell God his name. Why? Because you have no authority over him. See, when you name something, you have authority over it. So we buy pets, right? And if someone else had them before we did, we usually what? We change their name. Why? Because it's my pet now, not yours. I'm the owner. I have authority over you. Unless you buy a cat. (laughs) And if you buy a cat, you're never the authority over anything. But see, when we name things, we want to say, oh, that's mine. Kylie, we're teaching Kylie right now. That's Papa's. Oh, that. Oh, that's Mimi's. And then she says, Kylie's. <laughs> oh, she loves it. You know why? Kylie wants to have authority. <laughs> She's a little bit too much like a cat right now, but we're working on it. <laughs> See, God names John the baptizer, not his parents. Later on, later on in the chapter, he tells Mary, Mary you're going to call his name Jesus. You know why? I determine his name Because John and Jesus belong to me. Do you know that? You know what that means? God is in control, not you. Do you know that? See, you can't trust him 
You can't trust him with impossible situations if you think you're still in control. If you've got your hands all over your life, you can't. See, you can't trust God with whatever he sends into your life because you think you're in charge. Oh, see, that's what the Bible wants us to understand about trusting. See, can you imagine how hard it would have been for Zachariah and Elizabeth? We're only getting one child. We're not getting another one. And here's what God says. We can't name him. We will not continue our family name. We will not do what everybody else does. We won't fit in. Again, we will be ousted and no one will be understand what we're doing. There are 28 mothers in the Old Testament who named their children, 14 fathers. For a mother to name their child, it was a considered a great honor. And if you did, as a mother, you would always, always name them after the dad. Because it was your opportunity publicly to give honor to your husband and to their family. And to do it would be considered somewhat shameful. But she said no. Did you see it in the text? What are you going to name him? And they all saying Zachariah, because that's what everybody would have done. That's what everybody does. And when you get, the, as you're the mom, you get a chance to be the one who names. And she says no, <laughs> no, no. His name is going to be John. And everybody goes, so what? Did you hear what it says? There are none of your relatives who are called by this name. Why would you do that? Oh, see, nobody understands that. You trust Jesus and you're a teenager. And you go to school and you don't date anybody in high school. They won't understand that. Oh, see, you go and you don't drink and you don't have, you're not sexually immoral and you don't use drugs or smoke weed or whatever else. No, no one will grasp that. You have no exploits, quote unquote, to say anything on the weekend. You'll have no stories to tell. You'll be different than everybody else. They won't see it. And when you tell them that you don't do it, see, they think you're dishonoring them because you think you're better. You're different than us. You trust God on your job, but you don't cut ethical corners. You don't make it your identity that you live through what your job makes you out to be. You don't go to the office after office bar times together with everybody else. You don't compromise and do wicked things on your business trips. See, nobody understands that. You don't play office politics. You're not trying to climb the ladder like everybody else and do whatever it takes. See, they don't get that. They don't understand that. You don't dress that way, talk that way. You don't hold their views on cultural issues. They don't get it. Will you still trust? When that costs you the raise, when that costs the promotion, will you still trust? Oh, see, we're not asking anyone this morning to be odd different. We're asking you to be God different. Also, they finally get to Zechariah. And if you'll read verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. Now, back in verse 20, they, the Bible says that the angel says, because you did not believe my words, literally in the original language, it means you shall be struck dumb. What it means is, and it's a word that can go, it can be you're deaf, it could be you're mute, it could be that you are deaf and you are mute. I take this to mean, my friends, this is one of the New Testament examples of sign language. Because <laughs> it said they made signs to him. All right? So if he could hear, they wouldn't have made to meet any signs because he would have understood what they were asking him. Right? But he didn't. 
I believe that Zechariah couldn't hear and he could not speak either one. So he gets, they're making signs. Oh, this is what we're trying to tell you. What is the name? I don't know, how they, I don't know what the signs would have been, but he couldn't hear that. They would have made signs if he could hear. He would have just wrote on the tablet. But he does write on the tablet after the signs. It's interesting. He writes this. His name is John. Literally, John is his name. Why does that matter? Because he's emphatic about it. In the English, the name is last. In the Greek, it is first. Meaning, this is what he's stressing. He wants you to know John is his name. John is his name. Now listen, he did not say John, his name will be John, as if somehow he himself had made the decision. Oh, his name will be John because I came up with that. No, he says his name is John. You know what he's saying? God already decided that. And I'm just following what he said. See, Zechariah has gone from a failure of faith to a fullness of faith. And it's by far a smaller issue, naming someone. But he trusts God. See, he's going to trust God. He did with his birth. He trusts with the son's naming. He also says your son's going to be a Nazarite. So he's not going to be able to cut his hair, drink alcohol, and do it. So I'm going to trust God with how my son is to grow up. See, he's learning to trust God with his present because he viewed his past differently. And now he's going to act differently. And the Bible says the response of the people is, and they all wondered. It is the word that we get. It means theatrical. It means they were moved visibly in awe. Now, that word is used two times in the birth narrative, and it always relates to the shepherds hearing from the angels. They see angels. Zacharias saw an angel. That's how the word is used. It's always something spectacular, miraculous, and it isn't here. But it's still miraculous in what happens because I think people look at this. He couldn't hear his wife's answer to what his name would be. His wife says, John, he can't hear that. And so they ask him thinking, oh, he's going to say something different. He doesn't know his wife's going to say, John, who would know that? But he does. And they go, And on top of that, it says, next verse, and immediately, mean instantaneously. It's a word always cause cause and effect term. He obeyed God, trusted God, said his name was John, and nine months is over. And they know this. They've been witnessed that day to something special. Can I tell you this? That's what we need. That's what God's people need. You know what? Something special means this, that we are moving people, impacting people. Why? Because they see in us the ability to trust God and obey him because we believe in his words. After nine months, what do you think your first words would have been? Give me a Mountain Dew. No, you wouldn't have been that. What would you have said? About time. Whatever got into me, I don't know. You know what his words were? Bless God. After nine months, see what faith does? What a radical change. He went from doubting God, the first words out of his mouth to the angels. Well, I don't know how could this be. And then he says words of faith. God, you are blessed. You are awesome. See, he began to see God's hand in his present circumstances, and he praised him. He knew this. God had the power to bring my child into this world, and he'll have the power to take care of him. 
And when people saw that kind of faith, they were moved by it. They wondered. Can I tell you? Luke wrote this gospel 30 years plus. Jesus grew up 30 years. 30 years later, on top of that. So from the time of this event, Luke wrote the gospel is 60 years later. And when Luke goes around to try to find people to interview, the story is still there. The original people in the audience have, may have died, but they've been telling people and telling people, this is such a powerful story, story that six decades later, people are still wondering about it, still amazed by it. It's powerful. Listen, do you know this Christmas you can impact people like that? You can do it at your job, in your family, in your work. So you know how you can do it? Trust God. Believe his word. Act on it. Which one are you in? Which scene are you in? Failure of faith or fullness of faith? Will you say this? God, teach me. Teach me to trust you so I can see what you're doing in my life is an opportunity for mercy magnification, not me magnification. See, God wants to know, will you do that and trust me? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around today, we just, would you pray right now? In just a moment, we're going to welcome some new members into our church before we close and go to our small groups. Would you pray in the quietness of your heart and say, God, if it's true, I have trust issues. I do. I don't really see all the things in my past. I still gripe and complain about some of them. And Father, because of that, I don't see your hand in my present, what you're doing in my life. I only see the story I want to write, and you're not writing it the way I want you to. Trust issues. Would you pray, God, I want to turn around today and learn to trust you, and I want to start with, it's not about me magnification, it's about mercy magnification. Help me to see my life, past, present, and even future, through the lens of your story, not mine. Would you humbly pray that before God? Ah, oh, Father, you are blessed. All the things you've brought into our life, all the things that you've done that we don't deserve, but you've done them anyways. Your mercies are from everlasting to everlasting. And we rejoice in them. But we want to impact people by having a faith that's demonstrated in the most difficult and impossible times. Help us to trust you and accept anything, whatever it is that you send into our life, no matter if we understand it, no matter if others don't. May you be magnified in it. And help those today who are praying that prayer right now, God, that that might become real and their faith might be characterized by fullness, not failure because they see you and they trust your word. For it's in your name we pray, amen.